Good evening. Uh, it would be a tremendous understatement to say that it's a joy to be a part of this service for so many reasons. Um, my in-laws and uh, my wife was really fruit of this congregation many years ago in her RUF internship, and you all uh, brought her in like family. Uh, David McWilliams has been a father and a mentor to me, and Adam and Ellie were friends at Westminster Seminary. and. Um, more importantly, uh, we share a heartbeat that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified as the centerpiece of His church. So I am privileged to be here. Allow me to pray, and then we'll give our attention to God's Word. God, we do bow before You, asking You with solemnity and also with hopeful joy that you would teach us, that you would open our eyes, that we would understand your word, which you have given to us as the most precious gift to those who were lost in self-induced darkness, and you have shed light, even the light of the Lord Jesus Christ in your word. O Holy Spirit, visit us, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll stand, we're going to read Lamentations 2, verses 13 through 22, and then we'll look at a couple of other sections of Lamentations as well. Lamentations 2, verses 13 through 22, as presumably Jeremiah is lamenting the condition of this great city, Jerusalem, which has fallen in Babylonian exile. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we have swallowed her. Oh, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His Word which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. 
You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. The Lord gave full vent to His wrath. He poured out His hot anger and He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This is for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the unrighteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord Himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests no favor to the elders. And then those concluding words, starting with verse 19 of chapter 5. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. God's Word. Please be seated. One of Martin Luther's most significant works, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, written in 1520, Luther compared the church of his day to the time period of the Old Testament exile. What was Luther's point? His point was that he believed the medieval church had usurped God's authority and replaced God's voice with its own. That the leadership of the medieval church had taken the church hostage just like pagan Babylon had taken Judah hostage in the Old Testament so many years before. I don't have to tell you, that is a strong statement. That is a strong assessment to make about the Lord's church. And it was not well received by the leaders Luther addressed. But sadly, I believe it was a biblical assessment as Luther desired the Scriptures alone to govern God's people, not power-hungry leaders supplanting God's voice. Well, tonight, it's already been mentioned, this is a joyful, a solemn, a reverent occasion. With that Reformation backdrop, that solemn Reformation backdrop, I want us to do three things. I want to look at Judah's leaders, her prophets, her priests, and her kings who should have protected God's people, 
from pagan influences, both pagan teaching and pagan threats, but who instead harbored the sins of the nations within so that Judah actually looked a lot like Babylon long before Babylon ever took control of Judah. And this was because the sins of her leaders. We will consider Christ our true prophet, our true priest, and our true king. And then, by way of application, we will consider how Christ rules His New Testament church right here this evening with lessons from the background of Judah, lessons which Luther and others before us have sought to heed. So first, Judah's prophets, her priests, and her kings. Can't you see the train wreck that was developing in Jeremiah's day, the presumed author of the book? He was a faithful Old Testament prophet who had spoken God's Word And yet, all around him were unfaithful prophets, the majority of Judah's religious leaders, prophets who declared false messages, priests who brought false worship, kings who ruled by false standards. Lamentations 2.14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity, but have seen for you oracles which are false and misleading. Chapter 4, verse 13, the exile was because of the sins of Judah's prophets and the iniquities of her priests. Jeremiah 1.18, when Jeremiah was called by God to be a prophet, he was warned by God that he would have to speak against the kings of Judah and the other leaders of God's people, the prophets. Old Testament prophets served as the mouthpiece of God Himself. God called these prophets to apply the law of Moses to Israel in the promised land and to speak about Israel's future, what awaited her. But sadly, the more God's people strayed from God and His law, the more God's prophets had to speak words of future judgment to Israel, warning about the exile, which now in Lamentations has already transpired. Don't we know, if we just pause for a moment, don't we know why this transpired just by examining our own deceptive hearts? The people strayed. They did not like God's call to repent through the prophet as he applied God's law. So what did they do? It's a song as old as time, well, at least fallen time. They found another prophet, another prophet who would tell them, without abandoning God altogether, who would tell them a more digestible version of what they had heard, and yet it was still all said to come from above. There was a famous false prophet of Jeremiah's day. His name was Hananiah. Jeremiah 28, Jeremiah enacted Judah's future by wearing a wooden yoke to represent the hard labor which awaited her under Babylon's future rule. 
He was warning the priests that the vessels of the temple which King Nebuchadnezzar had taken to Babylon would not return to Jerusalem anytime soon. But the false prophet Hananiah declared that he himself had broken the yoke of Babylon and that within two years, Judah and her temple vessels would at last be home. Can you see what Hananiah was doing? By dulling God's word of judgment, Hananiah was thereby softening God's call to repent. Jeremiah is so uptight. He needs to relax. He needs to live a little, we might say, in our day. Footnote, Hananiah died under God's judgment that very same year, just as Jeremiah had warned. Or Jeremiah 29, the people of Judah exchanged Jeremiah's prophecy for the lies of Hananiah and other false prophets. Verse 19 of Jeremiah 29, God's people did not pay attention to my words that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets. You would not listen. Jeremiah 6.14, the prophets healed the wound of God's people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And God's people drank it down like Kool-Aid, like sweet poison, to use Calvin's term. Meanwhile, Jeremiah, the true prophet in Judah, speaking God's word from above, was being mocked by the people every time he opened his mouth. People of God, this is a joyful occasion, and we will transition to joy. But please hear me when I remind all of us of the obvious. These things really do happen, and they happen within the four walls of God's people, the church. It happened in Judah, it happened in Luther's day, and it happens all too often in our own day as well. By controlling the message, false messengers control the people, and the people are thereby robbed, robbed of their life of freedom before God, but the people are willing to be controlled and willing to be robbed of this freedom before God because this exchange allows them a license not to have to deal with God, not to have to repent before God. It's a tangled web which implicates all the parties of sinful self-interest. Well, then there are the priests Jeremiah 6.13, the priests, along with the prophets, were greedy for unjust gain. They dealt falsely. Do you remember, a priest served as an intermediary between God and man, representing sinful Israel in the temple where God provided atonement through blood sacrifice for sin. So, a priest's view of God and of sin drastically affected his treatment of the sacrifices he made in the temple. Jeremiah 7, 
Judah's priests gathered the whole of Israel. Children, they even gathered the little ones to bake cakes for a false god called the Queen of Heaven. And elsewhere, we learn that God's people burned their own children in the fire, mimicking the rituals of the surrounding nations. Instead of worshiping God, they provoked Him. But all the while, they boasted that they, God's people, were safe from God's judgment because, after all, they had the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, even though they mixed that temple with pagan ritual. The prophets and the priests were, meanwhile, being paid handsomely for appeasing the people this way. Can you see why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet? As grieved as he is as the, of the physical, regarding the physical condition of Jerusalem, he understands the spiritual realities that undergird all of it, and his heart is broken. It is cut to the core. Jeremiah knew that the outward church is not a safe refuge from God's judgment when we are harboring the world's idols within. Jeremiah 5, 30 and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way because it keeps the people from having to deal with the true and living God. And then the kings... We could look, for instance, at King Jehoiakim, king of Judah. God had Jeremiah's words read to Judah as a last-ditch call to repent. They were read to King Jehoiakim, who we're told was sitting comfortably by the fire in his winter house. So clearly hubris here. And what was Jehoiakim's response? He cut the scroll and he threw it into the fire until the entire scroll was consumed. But then we're given further commentary, neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments, just the opposite of what Josiah had done. King Jehoiakim doubled down by trying to have Jeremiah arrested. But God, the final voice, doubled down on Jehoiakim in response. God will have the final word, no matter what we do with His word which He has spoken. So, summarizing this negative picture before we make our turn, Psalm chapter 50 is a wonderful help here. This is, in my estimation, one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Psalm 50, verse 17, God said to His people, you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
And yet it's been placed behind God's own people so that they could walk in self-willed darkness. And then verses 18 and following itemize Israel's moral rebellion which ensued. Moral rebellion that looked much like these days of Judah. Stealing, adultery, evil speech, and gossip. Because, verse 21 of Psalm 50, God's people thought that God was altogether like them. It's a terrible picture. A picture very similar to the days of Jeremiah. When God's people refuse God's Word, even the God we claim to worship gets redefined and moral chaos and bankruptcy is never far behind. That's the negative of our text. But what about Christ, our true prophet, our true priest, and our true king? Well, He's the reason we've come to assemble this evening. He is the only reason we could assemble. Because Israel's history, including her leaders, was always, always about more than mere Israel. Israel bore in her womb the promise of a worldwide Messiah. So her prophets and her priests and her kings were shadows casting down from the heavenlies in the very moment they were given. Shadows of the second person of the Trinity who would take on human flesh to inaugurate the salvation kingdom of God. Lamentations 3 Verses 22 and 23, really the linchpin of this entire book, the the hinge upon which the book turns. You know these verses, you just might not be aware of their context. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. And that steadfast love, that faithfulness has been exhibited in the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel's faithful leaders were hints of this greater leader. So King David, the man after God's own heart, but he was a mere man and a sinful man at that. The greater David was yet to come. And the evil prophets, priests, and kings underlined for Israel the predicament in which she found herself and the fact that only the Lord Jesus Christ, only the right hand of God could savingly intervene. So Lamentations 4.20, which we read speaking positively of the Lord's anointed, which, yes, a reference to Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. But that reference had embedded into it a reference to the Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ. The somber book of Lamentations closes on a hopeful tone. 
But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Restore to us Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. And New Testament church of God, that is precisely what the triune God has done. It is the greatest restoration project in the history of the world, and it has been accomplished by the Lord Jesus. Christ, our prophet, came down to earth with heavenly words of salvation. Christ, our priest, bore our sins on the cross when He shed His blood for all of them. And He has sat down at the right hand of God the Father where this very moment He is interceding for you that your faith will not fail. And Christ our King, who came to earth with authority, now reigns exalted with all authority in heaven and on earth. And He's calling Jews and Gentiles, come and bow the knee. And that's the reason we gather here this evening. Because of our glorious Redeemer who reigns over His blood-bought bride in love. Well, how does Christ reign over His church. He's provided officers. He, the officer, the prophet, priest, and king, has provided elders and deacons to serve His church, one of whom we have the privilege of ordaining this very night. Adam McNeil first and foremost, sinner saved by grace, called effectually by the Father, is being called as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a minister provided to the church of Christ by Jesus Christ Himself. So, a minister, make no mistake, with true authority, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus said. But this new minister and all church officers, because they are delegated by Christ, must be faithful to Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king. You see, your ultimate loyalty as a congregation is not to Adam or to any pastor or even to this church. Our ultimate loyalty as God's people, ministers and the people alike, is to Jesus Christ, our King and our Shepherd and people of God. That is what set Martin Luther free. I will see His name hallowed in this His church. John 10, 27, Jesus said that we have the gracious supernatural ability to listen 
to his voice. Sheep recognize their shepherd's voice, and so they know it is safe. They know it is safe to follow. And Jesus Christ has given you that gracious gift if you belong to him by faith. And if you follow his voice, you also have the supernatural gift of spiritual discernment, Jesus says. John 10, verse 5, you will not listen to the voice of a stranger. In fact, you will flee from the sweet poison he seeks to serve. But in order for that to happen, we must open our Bibles. We must live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Otherwise, we will be led astray, even by the sound of our own deceptive hearts, rejecting and modifying God in favor of self. But Jesus doesn't leave it open-ended. He tells us, as the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, he will protect us from the enemy voice. We will never perish. No one will snatch us out of his hand. Now, I hope you can detect the circularity of what I just said. It's the Christ of the Scriptures who protects us. Any other Christ is a Christ of our own making and so of no true help to us. The church really can hijack the church just as it did in Jeremiah's and Luther's day. The world will threaten the church. But midst it all, Christ, the Good Shepherd, will protect His true church by His blood and by His voice such that we will never be snatched from His hand. As we conclude, 1 Peter begins by calling the New Testament church elect exiles. Well, if we fast forward to 1 Peter 5, verse 13, we see that the book ends on that hopeful word and realistic word as well. 1 Peter 5, verse 13, she who is in Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Babylon there, most likely a reference to the New Testament church that had been established in Rome, pagan Rome, which symbolized physical threats to God's people as well as false messages they would be tempted to imbibe. Every reason, humanly speaking, for a bleak forecast about the church there. But this church in Rome sends its joyful greetings to fellow elect exiles because this church knew that the chief shepherd does not take his eye off his chosen fold even in Babylon. Covenant Presbyterian Lakeland has been blessed by that chief shepherd for so many years. 
See, Luther said that most faithful churches last only about 30 years. But I am very glad that on this point, Covenant Lakeland has proven Luther wrong. May tonight's joyous occasion of the ordination of an under-shepherd here be yet another reminder to you, to Adam, to all of us, a reminder of and a call always to heed the protective eye of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ, even as you dwell in Babylon. Amen.